Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If you know people like that, start a small group with them using the Word Diet. You can look into that at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Exodus, a terrific book. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. This is our fourth week in the book of Exodus. Previous shows on Exodus and other books that I've covered are on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. The last three weeks, we've covered the first three chapters. Chapter one was the oppression by the Egyptians of the Israelites and their need for deliverance. Chapter two was the introduction to the eventual deliverer, Moses, and his birth and position by grace. One way to think about that is we have Genesis 1 through 3 for Exodus 2 and the birth of Moses, his creation, his fall, and the start of his redemption. Then last week we did Exodus 3, which is the burning bush, the call of God, and the beginning of Moses' questions about that call. Today we're in chapter 4 as we continue those questions and as his commissioning finally wraps up and the action with Pharaoh and the Israelites gets really rolling. Lord, be with us today. Help us to understand better who you are and what you want from us and for us from the text today, your interactions with Moses, your patience with him, his fears, your answers to that, Lord. May we learn something about you and what you want from us as we deal with others in our daily life. In Jesus' name, amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, the station, and the show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Exodus 4 today, and it's the middle of a section where God has commissioned Moses, but Moses has a series of five questions that really end up being excuses by the end of it. Uh, We covered the first two in chapter 3. The first was Moses asking, who am I? Which is a reasonable question, but ultimately the wrong question. It's not who is Moses, but who is God? And Moses' second question is, who is God? Who are you? What name do you go by? And that's where the famous Yahweh name of God makes its big appearance in chapter 3, verse 14. God gives a very long answer to that question, and that takes up the rest of chapter 3. God's lengthy and detailed replies throughout this passage reflect genuine concern for Moses. And we also see God's grace and patience in reassuring him. So now from here, as we move into chapter four, we're going from more legitimate questions toward just plain old excuses. And we start in verse one. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? So his question here, what if the Israelites don't believe me or listen to me? This is excuse number three, after what we saw in chapter three, verses 11 and 13. And here we see Moses' fear, his personal inadequacy. He's unsure of himself and so on. And this is worrisome at some level. He is just asking a question, but there's a number of troubling signs here. First of all, there's no wow after chapter three. It's almost as if he's waiting for God to quit talking so he can ask another question and make another excuse. 
He's asking if the Israelites won't believe, but really it seems it's as if Moses doesn't believe. And this is despite God's prior assurances. Verse 12, he'd said, I will be with you. Verse 14, he gives in the name Yahweh. There's various prophecies throughout that passage. And then Moses directly contradicts verse 18, where it says, the elders will listen to you. All of this is a really bad sign. Moses' failure here also signals to us that he's especially sensitive to this concern. This is the real, or at least the first real issue. Maybe God's answer was too long for Moses to handle. Maybe all the details of verses 16 through 22 made him nervous. It should have been encouraging, but often we can't handle a lot of information. He's also probably reflecting on his past and worried about the future. And this is similar to us when we worry too much about life's what-ifs. It reminds me of the great line in Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, where he says that God wants us to focus on the present in light of eternity rather than obsessing on the past and the future. And Moses is probably struggling with both of those, both his past and this calling that God has given him about the future. We tend to make things bigger than they are. We make things beyond our control, but we lose track that they're within God's control. We're focusing on self rather than God. And the fact is there's an infinite number of paralyzing possibilities for Moses and often for us. And this ends up being an excuse to contemplate and ultimately engage in disobedience. For Moses and for us, it's a lack of faith in God, his word, his promises, his empowering, and the people's response, which will be taken care of with God moving behind the scenes as he's done with Moses and as he'll do with the people and with Pharaoh. Then God replies in verses 2 through 5, Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. So the first thing of interest here is that God starts with a sign before answering the question. Lengthy talking had not worked with Moses to this point. So instead, God asks a question of his own and then gives a demonstration. So we've talked about God's word and his power, but here it's action instead of so much talking. I think for us as well, there's a lot of lessons here in how we handle other people. Sometimes we talk to people. Sometimes we give demonstrations and ask questions. And God is mixing it up, so to speak, in his dealings with Moses. There's great lessons for us as well in how we handle other people. So God takes a staff, probably a shepherd's crook, and then turns it into a snake in verse 3. A number of interesting things here. First of all, that a crook like this would have often been used for killing snakes. It's also a great indication of God using ordinary things for extraordinary purposes. He's the God of transforming power. Even the reference to God's name, again, repeated here in verse 5, going from the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob to Yahweh, and the transformative nature of that name is part of this point. Although the passage closes with the connection to the patriarchs, again, six times in this passage we have the use of the name Yahweh from chapter 3, verse 14. As for ordinary things being used for extraordinary purposes, he had used the staff to shepherd Jethro's sheep, and it's indicative of how he would shepherd God's people. Hopefully this would be an encouragement to Moses. 
Remember we talked about the burning bush, just a bush. Here's just a stick. And Moses hopefully sees himself as an ordinary thing that can be used and empowered for extraordinary purposes. Hopefully all of us see this, that, you know, given our talents, our efforts, the things that God has given us in terms of gifting, all of those can be used to great purpose by God empowering us. Think about Christ feeding the multitudes with a boy's bag lunch. Think also about verse 2 with the simple question that God is asking here, just to reiterate the point of how simple and ordinary this whole thing is. Well, let's go with another angle here. Why did God ask the question? Not out of ignorance. He wants Moses to verbalize the answer, to take a step of faith. All of this is for verse 5, so that they may believe, but we get the sense that it's so Moses might believe as well. The power of questions, the power of simple things, the power of getting people to verbalize what they already know can be very helpful in dealing with other people. Verse 3 ends with what's pretty amusing, right? That Moses is on the run from the snake, probably just enough distance to get away from the snake, what he considers a safe distance. It's a reflex to be startled, if not to run. Why is he running? Well, this is really awe-inspiring for one thing. And perhaps also, Moses probably knows snakes pretty well. This one was unknown or seemed especially dangerous. Although it turns out the later manifestations of the rod snake are going to be even wilder. So whatever this is, it scares them either because of the, you know, the magic, so to speak, of the staff turning into the snake or the snake itself is imposing. But it's also funny and foolish as well that he's in God's presence. God's chosen are never safe. He's not going to be safe, so to speak, when he deals with Pharaoh and the Israelites. And you can't run away from God as is portrayed in a much more memorable way with the book of Jonah. Verse 4, he overcomes his fear and courage and faith and in obedience to God, picks it up and it becomes a staff again. Was it especially brave in picking it up by the tail rather than the head? It's not what shepherds would usually do. If so, Alec Motyer says this may well have been the bravest thing he had ever done. It's also impressive given that snakes represented power and sovereignty in Egypt. Pharaohs wore a metal cobra on their headdresses. And snakes also represented life to the Egyptians. So this speaks to the possible influence of his upbringing as he's thinking about what the snake would mean. For us, this is a type of Satan's limits and ineptitude. Ultimately, Genesis 3.15, the snake's head will be crushed. And the punchline for Moses is that he would be able to overcome the Egyptians with God. If God can do it, if God can do these sorts of things, then handling the Egyptians is not going to be that big of a deal. Last thing here is that Arthur Pink gets really excited about the types here. Since this is the first biblical use of signs, he goes uh, into great detail about the parallels that he sees with other big themes in scripture. In terms of justification, we are helpless before the serpent and require the activity of a mediator. Ultimately, this serpent is controlled by God. It's grabbed by the tail now, and the head will be bruised later. In terms of sanctification, the staff and the rod are a form of support, and this is the grace of God that we depend on it for strength. And if we're cast down, though, we're helpless before the serpent without that grace. He also sees the staff and rod as a symbol of government power, later pictured as iron in Psalm 2.9 and Revelation 2.27, that when it's thrown down, it's used by Satan to cause all sorts of trouble. 
Pink sees the history of Israel to this point in this moment, that Abraham to Joseph was like being held in God's hand, Joseph to Pharaoh is like being cast to the ground, and Moses is about to pick it up and restore it through God. Pink also sees the future of Israel here, from Canaan to exile. Again, a picture of being cast down, but eventually picked up in the return from the exile, or even well into the future, the end of time. And then ultimately, Pink points to Jesus here, that he comes down to earth, he deals with the snake, particularly with language that we see from Paul in Galatians 3, 10 through 13, that he defeats the curse. And then the really cool passage in Numbers 21, 4 through 9 about the snake, the bronze snake, that leads to John 3, 14, which sets up John 3, 16, where Christ is actually compared to the snake. Christ is ultimately going to consume and defeat and bruise the snake, all sorts of metaphors here. And so the snake is brought under control here in Exodus 4, but ultimately through the ministry of Jesus Christ. All right, verses 6 through 9, Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. So the first thing here is that one sign is not sufficient from God's perspective. He provides two more, and what a wonderful picture of grace this is. Verse 6 and 7 gives the second sign that he puts his hand into the cloak twice, and it goes from normal to skin disease to restoration. Now, skin diseases are, and especially then, were feared and dreaded. They were not easily curable, and at least later they symbolized disobedience. We see this in Leviticus 13 and 14, and Moses' sister Miriam in a terrible episode in Numbers 12. Soon the prevalence of the same will be seen in Egypt. References to this in Exodus 15, 26 and Deuteronomy 28. And again, all this is subject to God to heal and to inflict. In the healing, we see a transformation from horror to awe and joy at being healed. And certainly the whole event would be humbling to him rather than the potential pride with wielding the rod. All of this also represents factors internal and personal to Moses. The hand is affected by the heart rather than vice versa. You've got a leprous heart and a hidden hand, which points to internal hidden sin. And all of this is indicative of his own unworthiness and the need for transformation and regeneration. Pink says here, the hand speaks of energy. It is the instrument for work. The Lord here shows that it is not the energy of the natural man, which is the mainspring of action in God's service. Now, the first and third signs appear explicitly later, but the second does not, except for a brief reference at the end of chapter 4 when he's talking to the elders, and it is later used as a rebuke to Miriam in Numbers 12, verse 10, for false testimony and speaking negatively about others. Was Moses guilty of the same sin here? Jonathan Sachs runs with that when he says he was entitled to have doubts about his own worthiness for the task. What he was not entitled to do was to have doubts about the people. In fact, his doubts were amply justified, but a leader does not 
need to have faith in himself, but rather he must have faith in the people he is to lead. And so one angle here that's interesting is that maybe God is upset at Moses slandering the people. Verse 9 is sign number 3, the water from the Nile becomes blood on the ground. This one is only promised in the future, again, stretching his faith. This is an application of the miraculous from the personal to the national. It takes things from fertility to death. This would be really frightening. I mean, imagine changing water to vegetable oil or wine. But this is unspeakably solemn, as Pink puts it. It's also similar to the first plague. We'll see this in chapter 7, verses 17 through 21. The Nile was viewed as life-giving, and here we have God and Moses' power over the Nile and the Egyptians' forms of sustenance, again, from life to death. Verse 8 tells us the purpose of these miraculous signs to demonstrate God's authority to prove to Moses, Israel, and Egypt, and Pharaoh that they may believe, in verse 8. Now, elsewhere, the term signs are used to provide assurance, to bear testimony to God, to give warning, and in general to encourage faith. But later, we know from the ministry of Jesus and the words of Paul that signs cause trouble. 1 Corinthians one twenty two: the Jews demand miraculous signs. And over and over again, Jesus denigrates and downplays the use of signs and a dependence on signs. One last point here, the language of 8 and 9, if they do not believe and they may believe, Read literally would cause us to question God's omniscience. God has shown a lot of certainty in talking to Moses, for example, in chapter 3, verse 19, and we have other reasons to question our questioning of God's omniscience. So what are some alternative readings here? One is that it's desirable from God's perspective to only communicate some of the information to Moses, that Moses knows the end, but not all the details. This would also help develop Moses' faith rather than a complete prophecy. It also extends Moses' effort. Maybe he wouldn't have tried as hard if he knew early attempts would fail or succeed. It still reveals something about God, at least his patience. And ironically, God answers Moses' what if from chapter 4, verse 1, with a few ifs of his own. Interesting that in communicating, if we are tentative with God, maybe he thinks it's best to be tentative with us. It's also reminiscent of Daniel 3, verses 16 through 18, where the the three are dealing with a fiery furnace, and they say, look, we think God's going to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow to you. So it's the same sort of language that's being used here. We don't always know exactly how God's going to move, whether it's communicated directly to us as it is with Moses, whether it's communicated directly as it is here to Moses, or when it's not communicated to us in such an indirect manner. But the bottom line is our character. How are we going to respond to what God puts in front of us with the circumstances of life, his promises, and his presence. All right, let's take a break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Exodus 4 today. And in the first segment, we covered the first nine verses, which is Moses' third excuse. And God answers it by giving him three signs. That takes us to excuse number four, verses 10 through 12. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. In the context of verse 9, this is not a good response 
This is following excuse number three. God has given him a terrific answer. And now without delay, there's no wow here or even an acknowledgement from Moses. And so this is bad and getting worse. Excuse number four in verse 10, I'm not a good speaker. I'm not eloquent, I'm slow of speech and tongue. Chapter 6, verse 12, he'll describe it as speaking with faltering lips. That's not a speech impediment. Acts 7.22 says that Moses was powerful in speech and action. There is a difference between powerful and eloquent. There's a difference between the prophet and the exhorter. Maybe it's an inexperience of public speaking. Maybe he feels like his fluency has deteriorated with age. Or if you think back to what the text has to offer here, the second effort to rescue in Exodus 2, he tried to speak in that context about justice, and that ended very poorly. So maybe this is pure excuse. Maybe Moses is is in fact an excellent speaker, but maybe he's just a B-level speaker and does not have sufficient confidence, especially given the challenge that he faces. You've probably heard the famous Jerry Seinfeld line, according to most studies, people's number one fear is public speaking, number two is death. This means to the average person, if you go to a funeral, you're better off in the casket than doing the eulogy. Is this true or false humility? It's hard to take it as true humility in the context where Moses is struggling with these excuses. Maybe Moses is focused on his own ability and his supposed weaknesses instead of God's empowering If that's the case, then really this fourth excuse is just another version of the first excuse that we saw back in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. In any case, criticizing our limits is, in essence, to criticize our Creator. It's also ironic that Moses addresses God here as Adonai, which means sovereign, which is the only reasonable response to this is trust. And later he's going to trust Aaron, but here he at least voices an inability to trust in the God who would empower him, to be able to get this job done. Moses is focusing on the past and since you have spoken to me. So apparently he's looking for an immediate change, looking for God to accomplish it in a certain way and in a particularly fast timing. The other thing to note is that he sure seems to be eloquent and quick with his excuses. And if that's the case, why could he speak so well to God, but not with man? Again, it's possible, but it sure rings like a hollow excuse at this point. It seems like he's still shuffling here, given the first three excuses. He's running out of excuses, and this foreshadows his impending disobedience, which will be the fifth response, starting in verse 13. Matthew Henry says, an unwilling mind will take up with a sorry excuse rather than none. And this certainly seems like a sorry excuse. Now, how does God respond to this? Well, I think a terse response would be the way to describe it. Four rhetorical, sarcastic questions right back at Moses. In terms of tone, it's a bit like Genesis 4-7 where God confronts Abel, very much like Job 38-41 through if you remember the end uh, or the near end of Job's story. In terms of style, I think we would say that God is getting edgier here with the sarcasm, exhortation, and the like. And Moses knew all this stuff, but he needed to be reminded, as we do sometimes as well. And sometimes you remind with a little bit of an edge. These are things that have been covered before. These are mistakes we shouldn't be making. These are things we're thinking about that are obviously false. Why are you doing that? There's no new information here, as we saw in chapter 3, verses 11 through 22. There's no new powers being conveyed here, as we saw in chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. These are simple reminders of what he already knows. Of these four questions. The first is the key. If God made the mouth, 
then everything else is going to take care of itself. It's just like thinking about Genesis 1-1. If God created the heavens and the earth, what's too big for him? The answer, of course, is nothing. Jesus later said something similar recorded in three of the Gospels. I'll read Luke 12, 11, and 12, where it says, When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. And Moses may be empowered by the Spirit. Maybe that's the way this is going to take place. But in any case, God has promised to empower him to give him the words to say. And Moses continues to struggle with that. After the four questions, then we have the terse command in verse 12 to go, but still encouraging with the promise to teach and to help Moses to speak. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4, the sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. The promise here is also very specific to Moses' speech. This is not general platitudes, vague promises from God. It's particularly in the area of weakness that Moses has elaborated on. And then the verbs help and teach. He's not going to do it all for him, but he's going to empower him. It's God's provision and Moses' participation. God reaches down to us where we're at, but he doesn't take excuses. I think for us, as we look at the things we're called to do in life, sometimes they're menial, sometimes they're difficult, and we feel like we're not wired for them, right? In essence, that's what Moses is saying. I'm not built to do this. But who does the wiring? It's God. And again, it's not a matter of ability. It's a matter of availability. We saw this with the first excuse. We're seeing it again here. Moses' root problem is trust and not being willing to make himself available to God's empowerment through Moses as his own kind of burning bush. Verses 13 through 17 for the conclusion. But Moses said, O Lord, please send someone else to do it. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform miraculous signs with it. Again, in the overall context of this passage, starting in chapter 3, verse 1, I'm just fascinated by the process of this. So this is the fifth excuse, but it's one of five. And we'll talk about this at the end, the process part of all this and how it's unfolded. For now, we have excuse number five. In essence, it's not even an excuse. It's just begging off in verse 13. Finally, we think Moses probably is actually being honest here, candid, that he just doesn't want to do it. If we had a translation of this in Spanish, it might be, no way, Jose. Or as Alec Motyer puts it, here am I, send someone else. But there's another intriguing possibility. In the Hebrew, it literally means send by whose hand you will send which can come off as lukewarm and fatalistic, a resigned acceptance that he's going to have to do it anyway, I might as well go. And if that's the way this is rolling out, this is also infuriating to God. God has come out of nowhere, so to speak, right in the wilderness, is calling Moses to this great task, and Moses is treating it like chopped liver. In Revelation 3, Christ talks about spitting the lukewarm out of his mouth, and so maybe that's where Moses ends up here. If so, it would be ironic, given his earlier passion back in chapter 2, to see apathy out of him, especially with respect to calling and empowerment. Verse 14, God's anger burned against Moses. It's interesting by implication and comparison that God's anger against Egypt is about to erupt as well. And so this is 
ominous because we know that what Egypt is going to receive is, of course, going to be far worse than this. You know, for us, when we get angry, a lot of times it's because we've been surprised or our expectations have been violated in some way. We're disappointed. God's not surprised here. But what we see then is that God believes that anger is the most appropriate response for the occasion. By analogy, we might think about parenthood, right? There are times when our kids don't surprise us, but what? how do you respond to it? And anger can be part of the mix and sometimes the best way to respond, to put an edge on it, for our anger to burn against uh, particular sins. I think in a nutshell, the issue is that Moses still doesn't trust God. That's annoying enough, but here the issue is more disobedience than fear. And yet God is still patient. He relents, that's mercy, and he offers Aaron's services, which is a matter of grace and, ironically, an answer to prayer. So verse 14, we're introduced to Aaron. This is Moses' older brother uh, who's still willing to take the secondary role. Moses is going to be the big cheese, but Aaron will be the lieutenant. Aaron is also a Levite, and this turns out to be the genesis of the priesthood later in the book. He's a good speaker, but be careful what you ask for. Aaron's going to be the instigator in chapter 32 with the golden calf in the role of God's spokesman. And so it's interesting that there are long-run consequences to Moses' disobedience as Aaron comes on board, reminiscent of what Abraham had with Ishmael when uh, they had the child with Hagar instead of waiting for Isaac. Verse 14 continues with a confirming prophecy about seeing Aaron and him being glad to see Moses. They probably hadn't seen each other in quite a while. Perhaps he's coming to tell him that his enemies had died. We see a reference to this in chapter 4, verse 19. Arthur Pink says here, Though God's anger was kindled against Moses, his wrath was tempered by mercy. The Lord grants still another sign. God knew the concerns of his heart and Moses' excuses beforehand. God still works with him and even sovereignly prepares Aaron from far before this episode, right? Think about this. Aaron is already on the move as the burning bush episode gets underway. Think how marvelous it is that God has arranged for time and place and history for Aaron to be traveling as God is talking to Moses. Verse 15 and 16 reiterates verse 12 for both of them. Again, the promise of empowerment and the encouragement at the end of 16 is interesting, as if you were a God to him, literally means you shall put the words in his mouth, God's words in his mouth. So there's a chain of command here. God's in charge, Moses is first, Aaron is second. Despite Aaron's gift, God would be his mouth as well. So in all of this, we're focused on the teamwork angle, reminds us of Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12, the two are better than one. Or Revelation 11.3 about the two witnesses. Or Luke 10.1 where Christ sends out the disciples in pairs. There's some couples ministries in the New Testament. Or maybe 1 Corinthians 12.4-7. through 7, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of workings, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And that common good is going to be reached in pairs, Moses and Aaron working together. All right, let's take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcast of previous episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. Questions and comments are always welcome on my Facebook. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Exodus 4 today. In the first segment, we covered the third excuse of Moses in verses 1 through 9. And then in verses 10 through 16, we covered the fourth excuse and then Moses begging off 
in verse 13. I read verse 17, but did not cover it yet, so let's get to that now. God says, but take this staff in your hand so you can perform miraculous signs with it. So this comes at the end of uh, God rebuking Moses, his anger burning, but then him also encouraging Moses through the gift of Aaron, his brother, coming to help him out. And that Aaron is actually on the move as this event has occurred. So tons of encouragement there. Verse 17 is somewhere between funny and interesting. Take this staff uh, as if Moses might forget it. It reminds me of the uh, American Express commercial, Don't Leave Home Without It. Might imply that Moses was in a hurry to leave and might actually leave it behind, even though the staff was connected to the miracles and the signs that were promised uh, in the early part of chapter 4. In any case, this is a nice ending and a change of subject, given the difficulties that this chapter and a half have presented for Moses, and it was bad and just getting worse. The staff reiterates his role as a shepherd. It reminds him of his humble origins. It's also a reminder of God's power and his hopeful availability of Moses to God. Dennis Prager says, Moses wages the battle against the Egyptians using a simple shepherd's rod rather than sophisticated weaponry. And one is reminded of David's slingshot and five stones going up against Goliath. Take this staff is also a connection for him in terms of a concrete action, a job to do. It's an easy closing opportunity for obedience. The staff will continue to be a reminder of this moment, and in particular, here at the end, his positive step taken in faith with that staff. It's also related to that. It's a focus on an external. It's something tangible. It's a reminder and a memorial. We are incarnate beings. Having physical reminders and memorials are helpful for us, and the staff would serve that purpose. This is one area where he had had success with his faith in an otherwise dismal showing. It's also a reminder to him, as Matthew Henry puts it, that one miracle would do him better than all the rhetoric in the world. Moses has been terribly concerned about what to say, but that's only going to be a piece of the puzzle. It's going to be God's power and sovereignty and the signs which will help carry the day. Verses 14 through 16 was God of the word. Verse 17 is a reminder of the God of power. It's both word and deed. One's reminded of Teddy Roosevelt, who said, speak softly and carry a big stick. And this is the big stick. The last thing I want to talk about as we wrap up chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through 4, 17, is the role of fear in this story. And what does that speak to the Christian and the non-Christian today? So first we know that fear is the beginning of wisdom for the non-Christian. Proverbs 1, 7 reminds us of that. And this is in contrast to being a knucklehead or in contrast to just apathy, not caring about things. And so fear is a good remedy for knuckleheadedness, for apathy. And for the non-Christian, fear has to be part of that equation. Fear about God's wrath, given one's sin, the need for mercy, and for grace. Ironically, for Christians, fear not is the most frequent command in the Bible. And so one of the problems here is that fear can be misdefined. It should be a profound, awe-filled reverence, but it should not lead to paralysis. Some interesting references here. Matthew 28, 8, So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. So they were afraid, filled with joy, hurried away, ran to tell the disciples. Fear and joy were combined there. Acts 9, 31, Then the church throughout Judea, 
Galilee and Samaria, enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and increased in numbers. 1 John 4, 16-18, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And so there, John is talking about the wrong kind of fear, which is not consistent with love. Think about the parable of the talents, Matthew 25, 25, the fearful servant who hides the talent and is rendered as wicked and lazy. Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Ephesians 6, 19 and 20, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And Proverbs 29, 25, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Those last three verses get to fearing the proper things, right? Having a proper fear of the Lord will help us avoid uh, an unwarranted fear in man. Or maybe it's best how it's summed up in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, toward the end of that great book, Fear God and Keep His Commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. So Moses is afraid. He's just not afraid of the right stuff. His fears are not balanced and prioritized properly. And the same is true for us, right? We battle various fears, but if we have a proper fear of the Lord, that will put our fears of man and events and life in their proper perspective. So what are we to make of this amazing episode, this communication between God and Moses? If I were to put it into an equation, I would say it's an enormous task that Moses has been called to, plus a great but deeply flawed man, plus a powerful and sovereign God. That's the equation. I really like what G. Campbell Morgan says about this passage, and he keeps coming back to the word but. Morgan writes, as we read this story, the natural mind feels full sympathy with the tremors of the soul of Moses, but it is surely written that we may learn the deeper lesson of the wrong of such failure. We are ever prone when God is calling us to some high service to say, but, and thus to introduce our statement of the difficulties as we see them. Presently, Moses learned to use his but in another way. In presence of difficulties, he came to the habit of considering them and then of saying, but God. The whole difference between faith and fear is that of the difference of putting our butts before or after God. God commands, but there are difficulties. That is paralysis. There are difficulties, but God commands. That is power. In other words, we have to be careful with our butts. When you hear yourself saying the word but, it's time to double check what you're really thinking. It's been said that excuses are the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. And I think that accurately describes Moses' five excuses. If you want the letter I in front of all five of them, it'd be his inadequacy, ignorance, incredibility, inarticulateness, and insubordination. Or as Wilmington puts it, I have no ability. That's chapter 3, verse 11. In contrast, Philippians 4.13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. He said, I have no message. That was chapter 3, verse 13. In contrast, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Third, he said, I have no authority. That was chapter 4, verse 1. 
For the believer, we have the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. His fourth excuse was that he had no eloquence. That was chapter 4, verse 10. In contrast, Luke 21, 15, Jesus said, For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. And finally, Moses said, I had no inclination. That was chapter 4, verse 13. In contrast, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Think about Moses's entire life. He's a shell of his former self. He's intimidated by a formidable task. We remember Moses as a great leader and a great man, but we also need to remember where he began and how patient God was with him. We remember the Moses at age 120. We tend to forget the start in chapters 3 and 4. Moses is also the first in the Bible to be called of God to his service. Abraham and the other patriarchs have been called to follow, but not to a particular service. So this is a key moment, and it's not about training, although God will use that training, whatever we have, the gifts, the experiences that we have. Arthur Pink says, Neither the wisdom of Egypt nor the solitude of the desert had fitted Moses for spiritual activities. When the Lord appeared to him, he was full of unbelief and self-will. Grace, not nature or training, must supply these. And it's going to be God's grace that trumps all of this. After the fact, we can look back and see how God had prepared him, the past providence, personal appearance in the present moment, and God's power and presence in the future. Last thing I want to discuss here is just God's general response here to Moses in this moment, that in the face of fear in particular and a problem in general, God encourages, provides information, empowers with resources, asks rhetorical questions, gets angry, and then moves to plan B. I think there's huge applications to the need for us to vary our responses within spirit-led parenting, mentoring, preaching, and teaching, including the occasional need for some anger and passion in our responses, but a varied response. A lot of times we just keep banging on the same methods and the same approaches. And if you look at Paul when he evangelizes throughout the book of Acts, he's constantly keeping his audience in mind, or think about the letter to the Galatians versus the Corinthians, very different audiences. If the only tool you got is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail, but that is not the approach of the Spirit. It's not the approach that God shows us here. We need to vary our responses, Spirit-led. And in each case, note that God did not take away his nervousness, but called him to partnership, what Mottier calls a position of trust, God's presence, his name, his promises. And so things wrap up, not as I can't, therefore I won't, but I can't, but he can, so I will. Two last applications here for ourselves. I think it's, it's important to pray for stronger shoulders, not lighter loads. Don't underestimate what God wants from you and for you. And then as we're working with others, we use the word encouragement a lot, but that's pretty light. Scripturally, the stronger word is exhortation, calling people to something greater. My favorite verse in this regard is Ephesians 4.29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. I love those last three phrases. Build others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. 
May we think of ourselves as God thinks of Moses. May we think of others and work with others as God works with Moses. Let's take our last break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. So far today, we've been in chapter 4, verses 1 through 17, and this brings to a conclusion a longer section that began back in chapter 3, verse 1. That's where God calls Moses from out of the wilderness to go back and lead the deliverance of Israel from Egypt and its oppression. Moses provides five excuses, and God responds with five answers. And we talked about those at great length for the last week and a half. Now, the rest of chapter 4 may seem like a loose sequence before the events get rolling in Egypt in chapter 5, verse 1, but there are some key moments here. We won't get through all of it today, but we'll get rolling here with verses 18 through 20. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. So verse 18 has Moses' request, obedient request, by the way, to leave. Must be soon afterwards, given what we know about Aaron's trip in chapter 4, verse 14 and 27. He's extending a proper courtesy to Jethro, his father-in-law, in this context, and then Jethro provides his consent later in verse 18. To see if any of them are still alive could be figurative, could be referring to family and friends, or maybe he's just being vague and cryptic, not wanting to give much of an answer. And that certainly seems to be the case as we consider what Moses has really said here. There's nothing specific to Jethro about his call. Now, this is interesting because Jethro is a man of God. He provides great advice later, but Moses doesn't say much here. Maybe it's that he doesn't want to boast. Maybe it's too sacred to share. Maybe he doesn't want to worry him about his daughter. He wants happier consent from Jethro, and he's not really sure about the details at this point. All he's going to do is worry his father-in-law, even if he trusts. It's not something that Jethro would necessarily understand. If Jethro's not going to understand, especially to the extent that he's unequally yoked, we don't know exactly what his relationship with God is. He's a man of God, but we don't know how deep that is. Then he's just not going to understand Really broadly, is anyone going to understand what Moses has just been through? And the last answer might be that Moses himself is not quite sure what's happened. And maybe he thinks he'd be tempted to stay if Jethro opposed him. Arthur Pink takes a pessimistic view of this in light of what we've seen so far in chapter 4 and what happens in the rest of chapter 4. He says his utterance here was quite Jacob-like. Moses says nothing about the Lord's appearing to him, of the communication he had received, nor of the positive assurance from God that he would bring his people out of Egypt into Canaan. Evidently, Moses was yet far from convinced. So I think that's possible as well, that Moses still isn't quite sure what to do with this. So whether it's Moses not being sure or not wanting to worry his father-in-law, he doesn't say much. And there are broad applications for us here as well. Sometimes it's not important or relevant or helpful for us to share various aspects of our experiences, particularly in our relationship with God. You share those with some people, not necessarily with all people, particularly those who can't handle the truth. Verse 19 tells us that God tells Moses that all the men who wanted him dead are themselves dead. This is an apparently unprovoked assurance, but God knows our secret struggles, and he knows that Moses is wrestling with this, and so this is news that would also be encouraging to Moses. 
Surely Moses is concerned with the macro problem of deliverance of Egypt and Israel, but he's also in the immediate time frame fearful of arrest and execution, and so this would put him at ease. So 18 and 19 is a bit of good news and bad news. All the bad stuff's gone, but a lot of the good stuff that he knew was gone as well. One thing was unchanged, and that's the eternal God of the burning bush. That's all that really matters in the big scheme of things. Some smaller things in verse 20, it mentions a plural of sons. Only Gershom has been mentioned by name so far. That's chapter 2, verse 22. The second son, Eliezer, is identified in chapter 18, verse 4. It's the same name as Abraham's servant in Genesis 15, 2. Verse 20 mentions the staff of God, and of God is specified here for the first time. We've seen the staff a few times, but it's now the staff of God. It's in his hand, implies its importance for performing the miracles, of course, but also for for providing daily encouragement for Moses. It's literally and figuratively something to lean on, something to hold on to tight. It's a reminder that God uses common things and of Moses' obedience in a largely regrettable conversation with God that ended back in verse 17. For the reader, it's a bit of optimism that the repetition here in the text, the explicit mention of it, implies that there's some resolution in his heart to be obedient at this point. And so the obedience continues with the journey and the staff. For the believer, we don't have a staff, but we do have the armor of God. It's important that we arm ourselves with the armor. We assure ourselves and remind ourselves of it. And that's what Moses is doing here. I like what Wilmington says here in concluding this section. Moses was told to take his shoes off for he was on holy ground. This he did. But it should be observed that he later put them back on again. All too often, Christians hear God speak to them concerning special service for him. They take their spiritual shoes off and then do nothing about that call. God needs individuals who will both take off and put back on their shoes. A worship experience should be followed by a working experience. And that's what Moses is about to do. Verses 21 through 23, the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel's my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. All right, a few small things and then one big thing to talk about here. Verse 22 has the bottom line, this is what the Lord says. In the King James, this is, thus saith the Lord, the first of many uses by Old Testament prophets. Verse 23, the penalty for Pharaoh's refusal will be ultimately the death of his firstborn. This is the tenth plague for all the firstborn. And this is made explicit through a comparison to Israel in verse 22 as God's firstborn son. Now, most broadly, this language symbolizes Israel's special relationship with God. And as a first son, it seems to be more about preeminence than chronology. God is interested in relationship with all people. And a firstborn son probably implies others. So that's good news for the Gentiles as well. It's interesting that Moses is given a sprinkling of details. He's given the beginning, the end, and some in the middle, these wonders, but far from all detail. So something is given here by God to encourage, but far from a complete roadmap for how this is going to play out in the next few months and chapters. Verse 21 also underlines Moses' participation in this, that he has instructions to perform the wonders. They were previously labeled signs to Moses, and these wonders would be performed before Pharaoh. And then God will provide here as well, and it says, I will harden his heart. 
Now, at the time, this is going to be an encouragement to Moses of a sort, but it does underline the difficulties that are inherent here. And really, specifically, this is only a prophecy connected to the tenth plague. But this phrase is going to come up actually quite a bit, seven times in Exodus and 20 times in Exodus 4 through 14. Half to God and half to Pharaoh. So in other words, the scriptures are saying that half of this is Pharaoh's primary responsibility. Half of it is God's primary responsibility. And what do we do with this? Well, first we should remind ourselves that Pharaoh had already hardened his heart to the cries of the oppressed. And also from the scriptures, we know that Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened it as well. And so we need to believe both and try to reconcile them. More broadly, this gets to the issues of free will and predestination or election. And scripture teaches both. And any view that you have that holds one of those in uh, too heavy of a balance is going to be off. We need to find a way to believe in both free will and predestination. I think one answer to this is go back to the formula of God's provision and our participation. In a sense, we can write this off as God is providing, God's participating in this, but Pharaoh certainly is as well. One's reminded of Romans 1, 21 through 28, where Paul writes that God had given them over to various things, but they engaged in sin. It's not either or, it's both and. The flip side of this is true as well. Even salvation and repentance are both a gift from God, but one that must be accepted. A.W. Tozer referred to this as prevenient grace, that it's a grace that we can even accept the grace of God. 2 Peter 3, nine: the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, and said he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Even salvation and repentance are a function of provision of God and participation of us. Later in Exodus, we'll see a combo here in chapter 9, verses 34 and 35. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts, so Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. And so again, this combination of Pharaoh's participation and God's provision. And Pharaoh's heart would continue to harden further, despite prophecies from Moses, despite the plagues from God. God tried to convince him. And if you think about where Pharaoh's coming from, there's no sense in being soft with him. Being hard with Pharaoh is the only possible response. Cahill says here, so when Moses tells God that he will make him obstinate, he's referring to the very nature of things. This is the way things are. They can be no other way. If Pharaoh wants to do this, if God's going to deliver Israel, what other response can there be by Pharaoh but a hardening of the heart? It's also interesting that the type of hardening differs whether we're talking about God or Pharaoh. There's actually two different words used in the Hebrew. When it's used for God, it's hazak, which means to make strong. When it's for Pharaoh, it's kabed, which means to make heavy, which is figurative for being stupid. So the type of hardening, God is strengthening his heart and Pharaoh's making himself stupid, in essence, is what the text is saying here. We don't have time to finish this discussion today, but one more thought to leave you with. It's possible that God does not hold him fully accountable, that Pharaoh is a special case. Paul writes about this in Romans 9, verses 16 and 17, and then 21. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? And so we can read Pharaoh as a special case uh, as a possibility here. The bottom line is John 9, 1 through 3. The man born blind from birth, and what's the punchline there? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
As Walvern and Zook put it, in God's infinite wisdom, he raised up this Pharaoh for that occasion so, so that in his rebellion against God, he might be an instrument for God's glory. Even when we don't fully understand, we trust that God is perfectly just and that he's dealt with Pharaoh in a just manner. Good to be with you today. Previous episodes are available by podcast, and we hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet. <laughs>